Welcome back to the Forward Podcast. I'm Lance Armstrong. Fascinating guest this week, Joe Nick Potowski. Not Potowski. I always pronounce it Potowski, but Joe Nick quickly corrected me um, when we started this podcast, which you'll hear. But old Joe Nick has been around for a long time and really knows uh, the Austin scene and Texas scene um, way better than probably just about anybody else. He's written a an amazing book uh, about my old friend Willie Nelson. He'd written an, a, a great book, well-researched book about, as you guys know, sore subject, my Dallas Cowboys. Covered Stevie Ray Vaughan, covered Selena. Been around a long time. I think you'll find it fascinating. Before we get to Joe Nick, a couple of things. Happy, happy Thanksgiving to you all. We do have a lot to be thankful for. Um, speaking of that, I'd like to start something here on the forward, and just um, if you guys uh, can help me out with this, it would be great. I'm gonna I'm gonna start a new weekly feature called the Survivor of the Week. Obviously, I'm a, ca- a cancer survivor, so I suspect most of the cases or most of the highlighted survivors will be cancer survivors. But I'm gonna start the week with with somebody. Uh, we get a lot of emails into the inbox here at the forward, but this one came through a couple of weeks ago, and, and it was uh, it was pretty intense to read. I, I, I haven't had many emails like this, but I'm going to go ahead and kick off week one with this email and make this our, our highlighted survivor of the week. I am not uh, most of the time. I suspect that that uh, that I'll I'll name names, so to speak. Uh, this this week I'm going to leave the name out just because this this one uh, it, it is intense. But um, send me your recommendations or, or people that are special to you or you're thankful for, um, and and send you know obviously send uh, a fair bit about their story so we can get into it on a weekly basis. So here we go in week one. So this is an email. Yes, says Lance. Not to be overly dramatic but you may have actually saved my life. Over the past four years, I've been through a brutal divorce in, when my, in which my ex-wife has alienated my daughters from me. I've not seen or heard from my youngest in over three years. I also lost my job as a partner in a large consulting firm, landed on my feet only to have the new firm run into challenges putting me back into the marketplace. One night in early July, while I was unable to sleep, trying to figure out how I was going to pay the child support that I haven't missed yet, generally feeling sorry for myself and considering suicide. I found the forward and the first episode of Stages. And so listening to it at 3 a.m., you said, quote, the quicker you can get from the position of, oh, I got fucked, to, hey, things happen for a reason, and I'm a better man for it. That's all about the forward. And it was a wake-up call. Four months later, my divorce is settled. I'm happily remarried to the most amazing woman who's been a rock star these past years, and I'm working for a startup doing amazing work with people who I respect and are great friends. That night was as low as I've ever been, and maybe I'd never had acted on those thoughts of leaving this life, but those words were a kick in the ass I needed, and the forward in stages has been a great help ever since. I just thought you may want to know that you continue to inspire to people to live strong, even in very different ways. So there we go. That's week one. I mean, that, that, that's a pretty intense email to read. But send us your stories. Send us your uh, send us your heroes, and we'll pick one a week. Read it here on the intro, 
And um, obviously the email, like I say, each and every week, the forward podcast at we do sport.com. Before we get to Joe Nick, Luke Arm, I say it every week. Luke Armstrong's Westlake Shaps remain undefeated. They won their first playoff game like 66 to whatever. But in week two, we got a really tough one against Smithson Valley outside of San Antonio. Uh, toughest game of the season. Wish us luck. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. And uh, we will talk to you next week. Joe Nick Patowski, you go by Joe Nick. I go by Joe Nick, and, and I'm not. not gonna, let's not burst Nick. a bubble right now. It's Patowski. There's no W in Patowski, and everybody gives me Patowski all the time. Uh, so it, while we're here, I'm correcting the record just to get things started out on the right foot. Patowski, yeah, and bastardized Polish Lithuanian. <laughs> the other half's Greek, so you know I'm a Euro mongrel. Meets Wimberley, Texas. Uh, yes. I'm the only one in Wimberley. You said you've been living in Wimberley for 26 years. So I moved here in 89. So, so I used, so I would have, riding down that way, when I first moved here from the Dallas area, that was, you know, there was nobody down there. It must, you must just bang your head against the wall when you think about the corridor, because that shit was like Shangri-La of hill country riding. Well, I did see a cyclist today on uh, 3237, the, the Kyle Wimberley Road, and mm. I thought, that yeah, guy's crazy. Crazy. There's no Because, you know, traffic was going nuts. But where we live out in our pocket, we're beyond Wimberley. And my wife is a daily rider. And uh, the, the beauty of it is there's still not much traffic. So we walk the dogs and there's no cars. I can take them off the leash and I don't pick up after them. I, 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 they like dropping their smells. Country living is different than city living. And the flood there a few years ago? You dodged uh, all that? Well, we had a, a property owner's park where I swim in the warm months and still swimming this week uh we lost all our cypress trees in our yeah. park it's great they're uh, like they were like they were like toothpicks it was uh it's still hard to look at yeah and it's still it's pretty now it's been two years and the land's healed pretty well but you just see these big old cypresses knocked down and mm. places and some some places they haven't come back but right. uh that's what you get you know what no matter where you are in the world all the cool and pretty places have dangers like that yeah. it, it seems like we're exposed to floods and and tornadoes and and droughts and all this stuff, but it sure is a pretty place to be. Right. Yeah. So, Look at Sonoma, California. I, I was up in Southern Oregon this last week, yeah. and another just great place. But you know, earthquakes and uh, and and tsunamis and wildfires. Right. There's no place. None of the cool places have, you know, no danger. All the cool places have Colorado. What is Colorado? I guess they get we get fires in Colorado. We get drought. We get pine beetle. The pine beetle is a real problem in certain parts of the state, especially along that I seventy corridor. But and the old uh, wildlife avalanche. urban interface. Yeah, avalanches. <laughs> yeah. So when you have, if I look at your body of work, and I mean, you just by the way for the listener, you walked in with, you know, twenty more books of just, and I'm you know. But, but if I go from Willie Nelson to Selena to the Dallas Cowboys to uh, Big Ben to, you know, how do you figure out what you want to go do? I mean, Willie, I get. I think we all get Willie. Even the Cowboys, I get. And we're going to get into that. But how do you figure out Stevie Ray Vaughan, another one? How do you I, figure out who to go after? I'm always looking. Hmm. And I, I do have an innate 
curiosity. I've always had a curiosity. And I think that's what drives me. And back in the early 70s, I moved to Austin in 73 and stayed till 93. Uh, and it's still my city. I mean, that's my closest city. But uh, I kind of, I moved, uh, I was up in Minneapolis running a, a record store called The Electric Fetus. It's still there. It's a pretty, very cool store. Prince bought his last record and his very last tweet was about the electric fetus. That's how cool a place it was. Wow. But I came to Austin because I knew he was, was. He was in the store? Yeah. He came and shopped and tweeted, I'm at the electric fetus. They, he was a good customer there. I, I went up there this summer and talked to him. But I left Minneapolis because I was homesick. One, you know, two winters, cold, that, sure. that's for the birds. But home was not Fort Worth where I grew up. I wanted to move to Austin because there was a music thing happening. And I had the aspirations of being a writer. I wanted to write about music. And I was beginning to get bylines. I got published in Cream Magazine while I was in Minneapolis and got a, a really nice encouraging letter from Lester Bangs, who later became my friend. And I wanted to move to Austin to write about music. And the conscious thinking was, uh, there's something happening here. And by being a contrarian, I'm going to get to record it or, or observe it. Mm. Because if you want to be a writer, and it still holds today, you really go to New York or if you're a smart writer and want to make a lot of money, you become you get into screenwriting and go to L.A. But that's it. Yep. Although, I got to say, in since I moved here, uh, one of the things that I've been writing about is uh, just the literary community that grew up here mm -hmm. and the arts communities that, that that has grown up. Basically, all things alternative uh, have really matured in Austin to where it's sometimes overwhelming and sometimes too too much. But after driving around East Austin this afternoon on a perfect Monday in uh, in the fall, it is a perfect. Day. I can't think of you know right. much better place to be. Yeah. Well, when we came when I came back in August from Colorado, it was not very perfect over here. I mean, the, it was hotter than hell, and the mosquitoes were as you know as big as birds. It's it's depressing every summer. I I I need to do what you do and just go north. You do for longer. We got out a few times and we go to West Texas where it's cool, or went up to Minnesota. But it was great. We we caught out in Wimberley in the hill country, we caught the very outer band of Harvey. So it went mm. in two days from just drought desert to lush tropics. Everything got greened up and nothing got flooded out. We just and, got a little bit and cooled off. And it was, it was kind of a beautiful end of summer. Hmm. And, uh, but you know, it's, it's hard here in the summer. Climate change is real and, and summers are not much fun anymore. Right. Even though I'm, I'm in that river every day swimming. Yeah. So, but I want to know, I mean, how do you get, how do you just come upon these things? I guess, I mean, like the difference between the Dallas Cowboys and Selena, Selena is, I mean, I don't. Okay. it's. All, I mean, obviously these are big stories. All right. No, I no made death. a choice to move here and, and look, I, I wrote about music for a while and that's, that was what brought me to the dance. But what's kept me dancing and trying to write and, uh, and, and curious is basically where I am in, in Texas is its own place. It's its own country. Hmm. And that's basically how I got to be a stringer at Rolling Stone magazine. Oh, he's the guy in Texas. And so, and I've, I've done that throughout my life through, I spent what I, I wrote for over 25 years for Texas monthly magazine. Right. And that really is what, that's where I grew up. Yeah. And that's where I learned how to really do it right. And was just surrounded by this sense of, uh, you know, great writers all around me. I mean, people that have gone off and, and, and been, you know, recognized. I mean, the right. Texas Monthly alum is just 
I mean, it, it's pretty incredible. When it's a great mafia to be part of. And I was lucky enough to get on board within two years after it started. Yeah. So uh, to see it grow as it did and, and to be with the people, the colleagues that I worked with, I mean, they're still my friends and, and, and they are people of, uh, that I respect greatly. Yeah. And, you know, get, get to work with Gary Cartwright every day and, and ask him, Gary, what do you do about this? And, you know, here's a guy that's written about everyone from the Cowboys to just, to candy bar and criminals. I mean, and to get mentored by people like that, uh, Greg Curtis, who was my, uh, uh, my first editor. And, and you uh, survived working for Mike Levy. I did, but we, we had our, our run-ins. We butted heads publicly. Oh. And uh, he but, yeah, that's because that's what he does. Well, you know what? He's was, a professional at that. I wrote a letter to the editor and it was just in the early days of online back in the nineties. And Mike was, voting you know he was campaigning against parks in this bond issue in austin yeah. i thought God, you know parks man you know we need green space and so i wrote a letter to the paper which i tried to rescind uh and so just just everyone should know that mike you know not everyone at texas monthly agrees with mike levy on on the position of parks in fact uh uh he could transcend being perceived as a mean-spirited rich boy if maybe he gave money so a park could be named after him and uh, I was on thin ice. I should have gotten canned. And I think ultimately when I did leave the magazine, that history had something to do with it. But I survived. And what was really weird is, and I'd asked the paper, I sent the next day a notice, don't publish this. But it was online. They said they never received it. Anyhow, they ran it. And uh, the phone burned the next yeah. day. And it was mainly with people that said, thank you for doing that. Of course. And for, for speaking out. And all I heard history, when, Cap, Tac, when Cactus Pryor called to dump on him, I thought, shit, nothing's sacred here. Yeah. But uh, I don't look, look for fights. And in fact, I'll say this now. I mean, I'm, I'm a lucky fellow that I got to work for Mike Levy because truly when he started this magazine and the way he ran it as a publisher up until the point he sold it, which to me is the great betrayal uh, I wish he never would have done it, but it it was it was it was a golden era, yep. and it really was great for literature. But from a business sense, I mean, his timing was good. I mean, yeah, but the, from a business sense, to sell to a radio holding company yeah. was horrible timing because radio began to lose value immediately. Right, but mags. I mean, the, but now it resold. I think a year ago again, it sold it to, to Paul Hobby and a hedge fund group. And Paul Hobby is uh, the son of uh, former Lieutenant Governor Bill Hobby. Mm -hmm. And the Hobby family owned the Houston Post, which was the second newspaper of Houston for years. And so that's great. But he's also Paul Hobby hedge fund manager. Yep. So, you know, that company has been drained and tightened so much. There, there is no give left. Yep. I mean, they, they're running too lean, I've heard from the inside. The, um, and I'm, I'm not really busting on Mike Levy, although I guess I sort of am a little bit. But cause Mike, he's, we love you. My, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I've always enjoyed uh, decent relationships or relations with him, and his newsletter drives everybody crazy, <laughs> and he's got all these fucking uh, ideas. I mean, you, you, you can't even believe Ignore it. the politics, but praise him for his emergency uh, response. He's really good on the EMS. He loves riding with the ambulance chaser. You cannot. There, the worst, in his world, the worst thing is speed bumps or traffic control. <laughs> he he will not allow cuz cuz the ambulance might get there 5 seconds later. I'm like, "Really in this town?" But, you know, they he and the, my my favorite Mike Levy story and and this is 
this has come full circle because they did a big profile on me in 2001 that Mike Hall wrote, who, when he wrote it, it you know, there were there was good stuff in it, and then there was a lot of bad stuff. In 2001, nobody wrote those articles. That, there was a lot of conflict internally. I can tell. I was still there then. So and I, so, I and I fucking it. hated Mike Hall. This guy was <laughs> dead to me, and it's so crazy because now he's a, a good friend, and he was actually on this podcast with a panel a few weeks ago, and. Um, but I remember calling Mike Levy and I said, Mike, I said, that, that is the biggest fuck job I've ever had. You know, I can't believe. And you know what he said? He goes, Lance, that was a wet kiss. <laughs> and I'm like, are you shitting me a wet kiss? <laughs> this is the magazine publisher. It wasn't even a dry kiss. This is the magazine publisher who on your first day at work comes up to you to greet you in his hurried, uh, uh, intense fashion, just to say, and just one piece of advice, don't fuck up. <laughs> and you know what? He was right. Yeah. So, yeah. What, do you make of, what do you make of Rolling Stone selling? Speaking of uh, magazine selling. You know, I, I got to get a little window to that when I was doing the Doug Somm film in 2014 where I was in New York, and we filmed Neon Winter. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he actually makes a cameo at the end of the film. Very, like three seconds is, is about it. But I, it was just weird because I'd been at the original Rolling Stone offices when I, I started stringing for Rolling Stone in 1974, the year after I got to Austin. Mm-hmm. And I visited the original headquarters in San Francisco, and, it, you know, it was kind of cool and, and woodsy and, and, and funky. And then here I am on Avenue of the Americas in the winter building. That seven, and I'm looking up, you know, we're waiting for Jan to come in. I'm looking at what's the value? $750 million, God. But... I've worked for Men's Journal. I've, I've, I've uh, actually did some stuff for Us Weekly. I've had friends that have worked in the winter world, and it changed. The interesting thing is, to me, is uh, I got to be a stringer at Rolling Stone because the previous stringer from Austin, Chet Flippo, left to go open the New York office of Rolling Stone. So I'd go up and see Chet in the 70s, and it still wasn't yawn world yet, although by the end of the 70s it was. The move came slowly. And it was a different, it's a completely different magazine. Yeah. But you know what was, I mean, was, when it started, uh, it was just friends. And here's a guy that, uh, uh, you know, was from the area. And, and I remember hearing the story from his, his neighbor, Boz Skaggs, said, uh, uh, yeah, Jan said, I'm starting up this magazine. Why don't you come do some reviews for me? So Boz wrote record reviews for me. I, uh, my friends, John Morthland and, and Ed Ward, uh, uh, Ed's still here in Austin, wrote for Rolling Stone in the early days. It was a very different publication, but it, it was music and it was exciting. And then it became bigger in the in the late seventies, eighties. Certainly with Hunter, the Hunter effect kind of just changed everything sure. with Hunter Thompson. And then every great, it wasn't music anymore. Music was shunted off to the side, which some of us music writers were not real happy with that. Right. But it was this was literature. This was modern American literature. They were doing great stories. Hunter appears a lot in this in a lot of these podcasts because of my freak power here. But um, just my connection to Aspen and the, all of the people there that were connected to him. So he comes up a lot in this show. Well, he should. And I never met him. I never <laughs> was ever around him. I would love to have experienced a little bit. I don't know that I would have loved it totally, but it would have been cool to at least have a taste. Yeah. I mean, but. once once or twice, but it it's it, it, it's funny how uh, how the magazine business works. The thing is, no magazine should be existing today 
that used to exist that we talk about, and I talk about in references, 70s and 80s and 90s. Everything's changed. And so, you know, New, New Yorker survives, Texas Monthly survives, but Rolling Stone doesn't. And yeah. it, it, to me, it indicates that's not, it, it hadn't been the Bible for music in decades. Does it survive as, as, as it has for a long time without the rape story? How, how yeah, much of it does. The rape story broke it. I, would, I, would, I mean, th- just the money involved. Yeah. And Jan had, I think someone came in as a partner then mm. and bought a pretty big chunk, but it wasn't controlling interest. Yeah. And, you know, he's he's willing to let go, and I guess his kid's going to, Gus is going to be involved, but it's just, it's it's not that important anymore. And And, you know, when it started, this is what's hard, staying relevant. And it started in, in the 60s, and I, the relevance to me stayed into the 90s. Texas Monthly started in, in, the, uh, in 1973, and its relevance certainly continued through the end of the 80s and into the 90s. And it does today. It still maintains re- relevance. Vanity Fair, publications like that, but Rolling Stone became like every other. It became like Spin did previously. Uh, That's be, been sold multiple times. You bring times. up Vanity Fair. It's going to be interesting to see... I was I was surprised that Graydon Carter decided to retire. Yeah, and you know then of course that that desk would be one of the most sought after or the most sought after desk in the entire magazine. I was reading know, the speculation Dallas. of who was going to fill. Yeah, the, the Times had it in there. You know they had six yeah. people or so, and um, it'll be interesting to see if they still maintain that influence in our society. It's it's because he's a, he's a force. Graydon Carter is a force. If he goes online somewhere, if he decides to do something post Vanity Fair, mm. that's what I want to watch because nothing dominates anymore. Like, and you know, I, I go back. I'm old enough that in radio, it was the impact in the in the early '70s. Dallas was the first city where an FM station had the w- number one ratings, which was K News, mm. and uh, that was Gordon McClendon in the early 1970s. So FM was new. And now it's so much. So we don't have we don't have Monday night football anymore when it was just you had three networks and maybe an indie station. So that's all you had to watch. Right. So we all watch the same thing. We don't have the common interest. And that's where I'm I'm all these <laughs> great Carter's got a great niche. Can he make it bigger? Can he can he get the attention of everybody? I don't know. And that's why I feel like with, with reading the New Yorker, I love the New Yorker. And it's so smart. But I realize there's not many people, yep. the great unwashed out there ain't reading it. I mean, look at what we're doing right now. Yeah. This is an alternative to that. This, the fact that I have a channel and I am generating content, well, shit, that means anybody can do it. Well, that's true. But uh, uh, you have a take and you have a name. And I like to think you've got the curiosity and drive yep. to keep things interesting. You're not just like, it's, it's not dead air or anything like that. It, I'm my, glad you listened to some of the episodes. That was nice, Joe. Well, uh, <laughs> my my son, who's 30, uh, no, my 26-year-old son, doesn't listen to radio, but he listens to podcasts and loads them up. So now I can say, Andy, listen to Lance this week. Yeah, And it, yeah. He'll, he'll finally listen because it's like, he doesn't care what dad does. So I just have one other Rolling Stone question because oh, yeah. I, got, I got a note here from a friend that, that said, ask him about, I guess you went up to Dallas or Fort Worth and, and Ray Benson was shooting a, a video and Leon Russell was directing. No, no, that was, that was at the Alliance Wagon Yard on, uh, I think it was 505 Neches Street downtown. And this was when the Cosmic Cowboy thing started blowing up. And this, this was my first byline Rolling Stone. Um, 
so Leon Russell's come to town. Yeah. And Leon Russell being here. Leon Russell's the biggest act in rock and roll. And and this is where Willie starts getting some legitimacy because he's hanging with Leon. And hmm. and people don't realize that Leon wants to be Willie at this time. That that's kind of the thing. So he likes hanging out here. Jim Franklin's brought him down. Jim Franklin's painted his pool. So Leon's got all the money in the world. He's moved back to Tulsa. He's bought a church for a recording studio. He's got a compound at a lake. And he's bought all this video equipment. He's got this company called Shelter Vision. We're going to go video music, which is a new concept because ain't nobody doing that. Hmm. There's, there's like these network TV variety shows, but that's it. No one's there filming wasn't, There was music. no MTV. So, no. And obviously. so Shelter Vision hits town and starts filming everywhere. And, and you know, they're going to do a network deal. I think at the end of the day, I don't know, maybe NBC did a special or they might have syndicated. Nothing much happened, but... Sleep at the Wheels playing at Alliance Wagon Yard. Sleep at the Wheels moved to Austin cut with, uh, you know, they've come here opening for Commander Cody at the Armadillo. They found the audience they've always been looking for. So they're playing at the Alliance Wagon Yard. And it's this crowd. It's a real mixed crowd. A lot of Willie's people, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of Leon's people. This little club is just packed, asshole to elbow. And, uh, and the big recording trucks outside they're making a video so everybody wants to get in on getting in on tv uh so you know yell real loud and, and wave and while this is happening they take a break um the wheel takes a break and ray goes out to the video truck to look at what they've just shot and at that point ray almost gets shot because a bullet flies by into the uh, into the mixing room into, into that vehicle and it's coming from out of the club. And it turned out it was this guy that was with Willie Nelson, one of Willie's people, one of his, who knows, enforcers. He was a big guy named Tim O'Connor. <laughs> so when I interviewed Tim O'Connor back in, uh, for the Willie book in the early 2000s, I told Tim, I said, uh, that, and Rolling Stone called me. I said, Dude, you know, get the story. And so I did. I did a straight-up news story. And it ran, I got my byline, and I told Tim O'Connor about 2006 or seven, Tim, thank you for getting me my byline in Rolling Stone. Tim O'Connor became probably the biggest concert promoter in Austin with direct events. And I was Austin just going to say, Hall. is this the same Tim O'Connor? This is the same Tim O'Connor. From the backyard and yes. Austin Music Hall? Yes. And, so I told and, Tim, thanks uh, for getting and, me my and byline. Zona Rosa? And Tim said, I had a prior and I had to leave the state for a year. Uh, but everything worked out okay because when he said I had a prior, I had to leave. Man, I didn't mean to write that then. You know, I didn't mean to get you in trouble. But uh, he said it was okay, and uh, and he did help get me my byline in Rolling Stone. So Tim, if you're listening, thank you so much. And his Again. health is—I don't know how his health is. It was—he had He's, cancer for a while. He had—he uh, had cancer. I think it went into remission. Uh, he's had some other issues, but uh, he's with us still. And. Uh, Isn't that? I mean, the, he's the an guy, amazing piece of work. He could have killed. It could, somebody could have died, and it, you know that wouldn't have been had to go out of the state you for know, a year. But Lance, that was a pre really. It was just this excitement. It's the first time the lights show up in town. That is so and, exciting. And this is the same time when it's like you know uh, people are moving to Austin instead of moving from Austin. Cocaine shows up around that time, and certainly a a a, a factor in all that. Uh, it just got too much, and and that was kind of. You know, Eddie told that story in his Armadillo book about mm -hmm. it. Was, that was what the breakup between Willie's boys and the Armadillo was. Uh, Bobby Hederman of the Armadillo asked Willie, I don't like your guys backstage carrying around guns. Right. 
don't do that. And, and Willie said, well, if you don't like my friends, you must not like me. And to me, I, I can, I understand it a lot better now because it was hippie idealism and not liking people with guns backstage. And Willie's just come from a 20 year run trying to make it in the, in the country music business. When, if you don't have a gun, you're not going to get paid. Right. That's he hired Paul English in 1966 not for his drumming, drumming but yeah. for his enforcement. Right. Right. So he, he and he always is that was that the guy with the trench coat that always walked around. Yeah, the man the, in black. He's the, the he's rifle. a badass, uh, and he and he still is a badass. But it was just it was that early period of seventies that there was so much that just was happening overnight. It seemed like, and Leon was a big factor. And uh, Tim O'Connor shooting off that gun was a factor in getting <laughs> me my byline. You're like, oh, it was so fun. It was just such a fun. Well. It, it was. Ray it was Benson always wouldn't edgy. have thought it fun. It was fun if it if it nailed. No, if the it back nailed. Of the head. And look, there was a, a time in the '76 Liberty Hill picnic. No, uh, Gonzalez, which they, they there was a lot of pushback from the community, and it ended up ending a day early. Uh, but I went with another writer named Nelson Allen in advance, like two weeks before. And Gino McCausland, the promoter, who's a storied promoter, talked about in this book from Dallas. And he was the badass, and he always carried. Nelson and I are sitting there asking this guy questions, and he's on the phone. And at one point, he puts the phone down, and then he starts just putting out his gun and, and like, kind of pointing his ass and Gino, what are you doing this for? You know, we're just asking you questions. But he was so jacked up and so trashed. That's just what he did, and that's how his people operate. Jesus. So there were a lot of guns. When you write, so here's this book, which, by the way, is there's a lot of book right here. So 500 pages. 500 pages of Willie Nelson's, like, life an epic life um how much how much access do you get to willie for this you know i've never done an authorized book hmm. and that's kind of weird in a way that uh, and it started with stevie vaughn that mm -hmm. jimmy wanted uh, another writer to write the official biography and bill crawford and i we didn't even think about it asking we just wrote a proposal and and little brown gave us some money so we started working on it and did it uh and with Willie, it was the same way. With Selena, I got death threats from her dad because I wouldn't cooperate. He wouldn't cooperate with me, and I wouldn't cooperate with him. We tried to work together. Briefly. We're going we're to get to that because I, I actually read a lot about her life and her death and her family oh. earlier today. But let's. But but, but um, where were we? The I just I mean how. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess oh, if it was Will, not with Willie's accent. Okay, with like Willie is the exception. And, yeah. in, in that I've interviewed him since 1974, and it's always been every year or two. There's a reason to go to, to the well of Willie, and I have covered a lot of his career, and it was a bet. And so I started, and I was I got into it, and the early on, I tried to send in word through Lana and other people. Uh, you know, I'm doing this book, and. Uh, and I went and talked to his, uh, I finally got a hold of his manager. You know, Mark Rothbaum? Very well. I would he's imagine a, you do because he's a, very uh, good friend. He's a big it, triathlete. Uh, you have designed his barn, I believe. He's, he's a great, great friend of mine. So Mark is also uh, a, a bull, he's a pit bull when it comes to repping yeah. his clients. Yep. And so like when I finally get, got a hold of him, why didn't you come to me first? You've been asking other people for, you know, he busted my chops. Uh, Mark, let me come to Connecticut. Let's have lunch. Yep. And we did, and I basically lined out what I wanted to do. He said, good, I think uh, Willie deserves another book. I wasn't happy with Bud Shrike's book, you know, the official autobiography. He could do, do more. Mark actually talked to me when he hadn't talked to anyone. And the next month after I talked to Mark, uh, I finally sat down with Willie. Uh, Paula was playing at the Saxon Pub 
on a Sunday afternoon right before Christmas, and Willie was waiting at the back, an empty Saxon pub at the very back corner. He's at the very back table, and he's facing the entrance. And, you know, Willie, I've been doing a lot of obsessing about you lately. And he said, I know. He said, he said, people keep calling, asking if it's okay to talk to you. Right. And so, like, I kind of just pause, and what's he going to say? He said, I'm sure glad you're doing this. That's sweet. And that was it. So, you going to talk to me? Well, sure. So, for the next year and a half, try to use that line. Go knock on the bus. Hey, Willie said uh, I could uh, come talk to him. You know, you, you, you do your work, and you hope you're going to get your interview. And I spent a week in uh, San Francisco when they played at the Fillmore for five nights. Mm. And basically, that gave me the opportunity. The band was staying out in uh, Marin County. And so during the day, I went every, every one of the crew and band members I hadn't spoken with. I did get their stories and like tune and Tom is not an easy guy. The keeper of Willie's uh, guitar trigger is not an easy guy to pin down, but I got them all at the very last night. Start of the show. It's raining and I'm waiting to go on the bus. I'm going to, I want to thank Willie and, uh, Gates Moore sees me outside. It's rain. Oh, just come on in now. And I went in and I just say, you know, thank you for, uh, uh, for making everything, everyone accessible. And he said, well, when are we going to talk? And I said, well, whenever you're ready. And he said, well, after the show, I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, okay. And at that moment I left the bus. I ran two miles to Sylvie Simmons house, the music writer, uh, who I was staying at her place grabbed all my shit uh and really i mean just nervous can't grab stuff fast enough got my uh rent car drove it back to the san francisco airport got a cab back in time for the last song of the set and i was gonna go hang out with mickey uh mickey rayfield as pootie used to say mickey's the reader in the band we always get along well he's a great guy uh mickey's wonderful great guy um but i was gonna i was gonna hang out with mickey and i thought better of it better go check the bus so i had my bag and uh, I took it on the bus and put it on. And, you know, no sooner had I done that, here comes Bobby, and she dumps some uh, dozen red roses in my lap. Someone's giving her some roses. Willie's signing three posters. That's all he's staying for. He doesn't stay for the last autograph anymore. And, like, within five minutes, the bus is rolling. So my timing was perfect. And they, uh, Lana fixed Bobby and Willie breakfast uh, bacon and eggs in, uh, eggs cooked in grapeseed oil. And after they ate breakfast, we sat down about 11 o'clock, 1130 and went till about three 30. Wow. And, uh, th- at that point, I forgot what the next question I was going to ask. I forgot what I just asked. And I just said, no moss. And, uh, uh, I think it was Gates handed me keys and, uh, your, your hotels here. And we're, in Santa Rosa, California, where I'd never been before. Yeah. Ended up going back a month later on vacation. I loved it Gorgeous. so much. And the next, it was an off day. And the next day, well, then I did it again, starting about two till about six, until I ran out of questions. <laughs> and I had time to review my manuscript in between, you know, that next morning. So I knew, I got to ask pretty much everything I wanted to ask. Um, and maybe there were a couple things I could have asked, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't want the interview to end. Yeah. He's, He's he's very easy. And, very easy. Uh, I've been around him quite a bit. I, I, not not in that capacity, but I. He is. Yeah. He's he's a very simple. Guy. I mean, seemingly simple. I mean, it's just a, it's an easy uh, 
relationship, interaction, flow. You know, it's just, there's no bullshit there. And it's George Jones, old press agent, told me that uh, they were going to, George Jones and Merle Haggard and, and Willie were going to do an album together. And she told me, she said, you know, Merle is just nervous as a cat all the time. It's, it's like prison. He's always looking behind himself, not very comfortable. He said, you, he gets on the bus on that table across from Willie. He said, he's another person. Yep. He just becomes beatific and calm and, and relaxed and another person. And Willie has, that's, it's, he's got preacher in him. Yep. And he's got that ability, not even saying anything or not even having to preach, but getting people to pay attention, but also to be relaxed and, and in his presence. And, uh, it's a skill that just, it, it blows my mind to watch him work. I, I had the good fortune. I'm going to tell you a really cool story because I had the just tremendous fortune to, to be at that table with Willie in his usual seat and Merle Haggard across the table. And there was a third buddy of Willie's who always plays cards with Willie. I've met a couple of times. I'm spacing his name. But I was, they were doing a very small uh, show at Arlen Studios. So they were basically, you know this, I mean, they were taking Arlen Studios and kind of replicating a, a much smaller, more intimate version of ACL, Austin City Limits. And so uh, Willie and Merle were playing that night, and we get there, and um, uh, somebody comes up and says, Willie wants you on the bus. So I, me and Anna uh, went in with my manager, and so we're, we're watching these guys um, playing cars but so two things happened one uh merle had his wife with him who was a uh, little younger than him he, he was getting up there and and i'll never forget when i walked in he's looking around trying to figure out who's walking in and i hear i, I catch his wife lean in and go this is lance armstrong he's the one who got in trouble for all the drugs <laughs> and so i just thought that is that's some funny shit right there so <laughs> later <laughs> we're sitting <laughs> We're sitting there, and uh, uh, it won't, you know, we've been there for, and of course, they're going to go on when they want to go on. They don't fucking care if people sure. are sitting around. So they're just there gambling. Get, there's hundreds everywhere, you know, pot everywhere, which is a whole other amazing, amazing story, opportunity in my life. Um, if you're going to smoke. If you're going to smoke. If, go you, if you can get stoned with Willie and Merle, I don't care if you go to church eight days a week, you better do it. Anyway, so at one point, Merle leans in and he says, Hey, son, what do they get you for? <laughs> he had no, I mean, <laughs> that was drugs to him. And I said, I said, Merle, I said, it's, it's actually, it's a, it's a different type of thing. I didn't even want to get into, you know, cocaine versus EPO, but. But that that's was, so flattering. I mean, he's, he's, you know, you're a, you're a fellow, uh, we're running together, buddy. What'd they get you in? But I'm going to tell you one one of the most compassionate, empathetic, sweetest things that I ever saw in my entire fucking life, Joe Nick, is there are three guys playing, right? And there's hundreds everywhere, and Merle is is getting his ass kicked. And, of course, Willie almost always wins. But so, And Merle's stack of hundreds is getting low. And I catch Willie Nelson take maybe 20 hundreds, he goes under the table, taps Merle on the leg, hands him basic, you know, 2,000 bucks or whatever it was, a chunk of 100, a stack of 100s. Merle takes it, put in just, just to keep, it's all just to keep the game going. He, it, it was one of the most unbelievable sights that I've ever captured. Just, to, I was like, did that just, but because he wanted his friend to stay in the game and it was, you know what? That, that is so much of, the life and, and maybe this is what happens when you get older I, i'm 
you know, you just want to stay in the game. You want to keep playing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I have an old uh, client I used to manage back in the 80s, Alejandro Escovedo, sure. musician. And Alejandro, whenever we talk about it, yeah, I got a deal here. I said, you know, you, you still get to play. And that's really, you know, that's all, that's all I, I want to see people I came up with. You know, if, if they want to play, everybody should be able to play, but it's when they can't for whatever reason. They're not allowed to or they're unable. That's when, you know, that's, that's when it, the, the end begins. By, by the way, for the listener at home, if you've never heard of Alejandro Escovedo, you can, you can obviously go look up his music. But let me just put it this way. If Bruce Springsteen comes to Austin and plays, y- you can bet your life that he brings up Alejandro Escovedo every time. A hundred times out of a hundred. That's the kind and of legend. And he damn well should. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So let's, the, we're talking, now we're talking about legends and, and good right. times. Yeah, and all yeah. That. But, but we got no, to, I like what you say, though. That, that, uh, what Willie is trying to do is just keep the game going. And I really think that's the whole thing. He's got, when I he saw him, But he didn't want his friend out of the game. It was, no, it was, it was that, amazing. Because then it's not as much fun. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that's, he likes hanging out with people like that. And then to lose Ray and to lose Merle. Well, he doesn't do funerals. Mm. He's not a funeral guy because if he did, that's all he'd be doing. Yeah. And it's also, you got to be looking forward, yeah. but you just want, you want everybody to stay in the game. I think that's a great sentiment. The, uh, he'll gamble on anything. When we play golf, we get, it's a hundred a hole and he, he, he's <laughs> not good, great, but I give him some shots and he puts left, you know, one handed and it, it's a tribute. But Willie, he would literally, if, if just got bored enough, if there was a, a power line or a wire and there were two birds on it, He'll he'll bet you. Well, you you know all. He's this. a betting man. Yeah. That's which just, okay? Which one you got? And, yeah. and you, any the stakes, whatever you want. Which one takes off first? Now this, this this is when he gets scary, and this is when he's hardcore. It's like you know we're not laughing or funning around. He he's a, a hardcore gambler. Yeah. And he plays the odds, and you know he he doesn't lose often. No. No. So now now we have to turn it to a very sore subject for okay. for both you and I, and that's what. The Dallas Cowboys. Oh God! Well, no, I shouldn't say. Oh God! Uh, I, it's, I've I, had a lot of I've had a lot of touch points on this show relating to the Dallas Cowboys, primarily Troy Aikman, who I had on this summer, who was just incredible. Um, and growing up in Dallas, growing up through two generations of or two sort of turnovers of everything from Staubach and Josette, and you know, on to Aikman and Emmett and Irvin, and on and now. Well, this, mm. this book stopped three years ago with Tony Romo yep. and it stopped in a very bad place for the Cowboys. And last year was a lot of fun. Uh, this year, I think rea- back to reality and will you even make the playoffs? Uh, and this book, I was very critical of Jerry Jones as a general manager. Right. Uh, he's been a great salesman, but in my mind, there's been two great salesmen of the Cowboys. And the first was, uh, uh, Don Meredith, the first quarterback. Yep who basically sold the team first to Dallas when there were two teams and then to the rest of NFL, the the NFL when they got good, but they never quite made it. And Staubach really got to enjoy those, those spoils. I've just been, uh, three weeks ago, I was in Dallas with Michael Meredith, Don Meredith's son. Wow. And he's doing a documentary on the ice bowl that uh, will be airing into December. But he's also starting another documentary called The First Cowboys on the 60s-era Cowboys that played around his dad. And uh, he's contacted. He read, read the book and liked what I, what I said, especially about Don. But he also gets 
when I was writing about how Dallas, the city came of age with that football team. And it really, it, it's, there's no better way to understand Dallas, the place and which is a complex place than, than to go through the football team and its story, because the guys that started were not, not just, you know, billionaires, but they were visionaries and they made it up out of whole cloth. And so to me, I love the early part of the story because that set, sets a legacy. And my argument is, whatever you think of the modern NFL today goes back to the Cowboys in the early 60s. Tech Schramm seeing the future on television. Uh, Tom Landry, you know, altering how coaching was done. Gil Brandt. Drafts. It, Gil, Gil Brandt showed up at the party. Yeah. Uh, the man with a scientific mind who he's scary to ask about. What about so-and-so, Gil? Because the computer goes on. Mm. And the Cowboys were the first team in, to use a computer to, to scout. And, but Gill is a human computer. So these figures are, they're larger than life. And when I thought I put this book behind me, Michael's come back and, and I went to the game and to this banquet and kind of, I may be getting drugged back into this story, but mainly it's that early story. The current story, man, Cowboys Stadium, I've been there enough. And it's like, it's being inside of a pinball machine and I love pinball, but there's a limit, you know, and you walk away from the machine every now and then. You're getting barraged with commercials and all this shit. It's not a great place to watch a game because that screen dominates. And and all these fake fan cuts where they have all these hired fans, like the guys that they're dressed up like the UT Cowboys in their start shirts and jeans, and they're all going hook them in their cowboy hats, and they're all yelling to the cameras. And it's like, the crowd ain't yelling. It's just these these hired hands are. You think they, they don't hire. Those are people. But come on. Well, it's, 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 they find I, those people. I, the I write in here about when they moved from the Cotton Bowl to Texas Stadium. That was the start of, of the, the whole idea of stadium suites sure. and stratification and seating in stadium sports. That didn't exist in the United States until then. And I thought that was soulless. The crowd was taken out of the game, but they're even more out of the game at Cowboys Stadium because it's just like you're looking around at everything. You're, so, you're not watching the game. So everybody knows I'm a huge well, I talk a lot on the show about, not a lot, but I, enough about the Cowboys and Jerry. And I've met Jerry quite a few times, and he's, he's wonderful in person. He's funny. He's personable. He's, yeah. He's, how the hell are you? And, and I listened to one of your radio interviews from a couple years ago where you, you talked pretty you know, in-depth about, okay, it's one thing to be an owner. It's another thing to be a, gem, a GM, but you can't be both because you can't tire yourself. Um, well, I guess you could, but he, and he would have been fired multiple times. Jerry's Jerry, Jerry won't do that. But so I had never been to the new, the new stadium. And I just said, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, look, obviously we're down in Austin. I'm like, not going. I can't, I can't, not yet. And the first time I went was actually for a U2 concert about a year ago, which was amazing. But so this year I went to the home opener and against the giants, which I, the Cowboys played great. Uh, we were in a suite. And but I got a tour around and went and talked to Set and Jerry's box for a while and nice. it, it that part you gotta you gotta give to him like the well guy, what I give to him it, it is it is the greatest stadium in existence right now and then Period. there but now there is a, a a there's literally a suburb of the stadium my my folks live in Frisco yeah so oh yeah you've I mean and I was with one of the the business guys for the Cowboys and I'm like okay. How much, and we were in a suite, kind of field level in the end zone. I'm like, how much is this suite? And the, the, the suites are astronomically priced. So, the, you know, it's 500000 bucks, whatever the number is. 
but you have to sign a 10-year deal. You have to do it for... So, so the suites on either side of Jerry, for example, get a load of this, folks. $1.5 million a year, and you have to commit to 10 years for one suite. That's 50, obviously, that's $15 million. And then... You got to buy the seats, and then you got to buy the food, the, seats the drinks, on top of that. all that shit. And so he and, I, and I'm sitting there looking around, going, okay. and I said, "How many suites?" And they said, "Oh, there's 389 suites." On my mind, I'm just like my calculator can't even keep up. And then I see what he's doing out by my folks' house, which, by the way, people in those parts they love, love, love this, and he's doing good stuff there. Like the guy for for the guy, this this wildcatter comes to Dallas, pays 150 million bucks. His dad says you're absolutely fucking crazy. This is the dumbest thing you've ever done. He he might be a real shitty GM, but man, he is he he's he's got something going. All right, he he's a brilliant businessman, and his people in Arkansas reminded me last year when I was up there, we helped pay uh, for the Cowboys because he did a, a gas deal that basically where he made his fortune. The state of Arkansas saw gas gas buyers were locked into this rate that was higher than what the market was, but they had to pay it, and it all went to Jerry. That's how he built his fortune. Mm. And and to me, the most important thing to remember about him is his daddy was a showman as a grocery, as a grocer, and that he had Western swing bands and radio performances in his grocery store, and at the front of the store was his son, Jerry, who wore a bow tie and greeted every customer that came in. Wow. Same thing that John, Don Meredith did with his parents' hardware store in Mount Vernon, Texas. So they these guys learn retail salesmanship. But when I think of everything you've said about the stadium, and it's true, I think for, from the consumer standpoint, who is this for? And, you know, Cotton Bowl, they're actually, I talked to people. I was a kid, you know, I could go sit in the end zone for $2. I watched the Cowboys. I grew up on the Cowboys. That don't happen anymore, right? But that, that, but that, that's that was Dallas then. That is not Dallas well, now. I grew up there. I mean, it's it is it is Dallas is Dallas. Football it's, is spectacle now, but but the the unaffordability of it yeah. when when you when you're when you basically relegated X percentage to watch it on TV and nothing else, it, it's 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 going to get hollowed out sooner or later. It's ba- it's going to be baseball sooner or later. You know the thing what, that I, yeah, the thing I was and I haven't been to an NFL game in a long time until that one. I was. Not, I wasn't even shocked. I was like floored at how many people wear jerseys, wear players' jerseys. I come from this world, like if you're riding down the road and you're wearing a Team Sky jersey, I mean, most cyclists look at that and you're like, really? Are you really wearing? <laughs> I mean, the only worst thing you could wear is a fucking yellow jersey. Yeah. Right? So you, you, nobody, and you, I went to this game and it, 90% of the people were wearing Cowboys jerseys. I was like, you're adults. Are you really wearing a jersey? Well, if if you're a fan, and and this is where I will say, maybe maybe the kid in Arlington is not going to go see a game for five dollars, but you're going to show you're going to show up and you're going to make the trip to Ar- Arlington. And this is what happened the first few years. It was the opposing teams, any opposing team that was playing there, all their fans wanted to fly in and see the new stadium. So I saw the Cowboys loses the Bears and. I would say a good 30% of the crowd was, was bears, but so people want to dress up and represent and the Cowboys have this appeal. I think they've got a stronger appeal where people buy more merch of theirs. Maybe the Patriots come close now, but I think overall Cowboys do more merch 
And uh, when I saw the Giants play, it was the second year of the stadium open, I saw him play against the Giants, and I was sitting up in the nosebleeds and in a section there was nothing but fans that had been busted in from Monterey, Mexico. There was a tour operator that had been doing it for 30 years, and he said he was worried about continuing doing it. He felt like he was going to get priced out. He couldn't do it anymore. Yep. But that's why they're Mexico's team. They're, they're, I think they, how many, they have season ticket holders from 32 countries. Yeah. Still America's team? Uh, of course. Okay. I mean, this, we're talking about them, aren't we? We're not talking about well, the ja- talking, Jacksonville Jaguars. Well, we didn't grow up in Jacksonville. I know, but or, look, or even if we're in Boston, the Patriots get old in about five minutes, and there is no other real team that has celebrity and glamour like the Cowboys, period. Jerry has helped extend that. Yeah. Let's sell some more popcorn. But that has been always thus. There's only one team with a star on their helmet. Yeah. What could be a simpler logo in the world? That, that is the simplest, most enduring logo, period. Bigger than Dr. Pepper, which is saying a lot from where we come from. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Stevie Ray Vaughn. What about him? Uh, well, I will just tell a personal story. I was, I was, you know, I had lived here in Austin for a few years, and he was obviously who he was. I was surprised when I was researching your life, and so therefore researching your work, that he died at 35 years old. Yeah. It, it, which is, like, I would, I'm 46, and I mean, if, he died in 1990. I will never forget. I was at the World Cycling Championships in Utsunomiya, Japan, and it and it it was late at night. The race, all the races were over. We were up, kind of just celebrating, and it came on the news that that he had died uh, at that festival in Wisconsin. And, and I was like, I wasn't a huge Stevie Ray fan, and I didn't, you know, I might have had a CD or two. That shows you how long ago it was, but it was it was surreal to to get that news oh, so far away and, and, and a helicopter. What I, I couldn't put it together. It's still, it, I, I, it still unsettles me. I, I was cursing the name of Hannah Balti. The fact that I even can remember this person's name, who is the publicist that was handling the family style album. And I was driving into the Texas monthly offices, downtown Austin into the garage. God damn that Hannah Balti hadn't called me back yet. Because I was trying to do a phoner with Jimmy and Stevie on their new album. It was, you know, it wasn't going to be a big piece, but it was going to be something noting that they're playing together. And went upstairs, and Betty Layton, Chris Layton's wife, worked oh, yeah, in the, the production department. So she had just gotten word, and it started passing around. And, you know, just that day and that, that whole period of time is, you know, senseless death. It, it, but, you know, preceded by this, this wonderful redemption that, you know, he should have died 10 years earlier as tore down as he was. Yeah. He, w- he was about as destructive as any... Uh, Drugs and alcohol. Yeah, musician that I, I knew of. Wow. It, Steve was always just focused. And it was focused on playing guitar that... I remember in the uh, around 75 or so going to... Uh, I must have been 76. I was living on South 5th Street, right down the block from uh, Danny Freeman and, and Ray Benson and uh, a, a bunch of guys. And we went over to Danny's house... And there was Stevie, and this was one afternoon. We were over there for a couple hours, just bullshitting. Stevie's in the corner, doesn't, you know, he nods when he walks in, but the whole time, all he's doing is this, playing with his guitar, looking down at his strings, and it's just like, God, does that guy know how to tie his shoes? And was never very, you never saw anything but that. And I look back now, and it's like, well, that's what an artist is. He was so deep into what he did. And, 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 you know, to the point that you... It was hard for sometimes the public to recognize it, but he was an artist and to catch himself and, and 
undo his demons at a time when everybody thought, you know, you give up, you know, give up Coke or, or you know, quit smoking weed or, or quit drinking and you're going to lose your mojo. You know, your magic's going to be gone. And Stevie not only cleaned up, but it became infectious with Jimmy and, 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 and with Bonnie Ray and with people like that. I mean, he, he, he was willing to talk about it when people asked and him. And how long did he live sober? I think five years. So the thing about that, I mean, he dies at 35, he cleans up at 30. I mean, not many people clean up at 30 because no. people go right through 30. Well, he should have been, yeah, but he was like coughing up blood. He was just, he was killing himself. Damn. And I mean, the amount that he was doing it, you know, dropping a gram into a shot of, uh, uh, of whiskey and then drinking it, shit like that. I mean, it was just, you did whatever you could do just to keep going. And he was being driven pretty hard. Wow. But, um, and then just the, the sort of the Ferris wheel of that, that particular, uh, obviously there were a lot of helicopters leaving Alpine Valley yeah. that day. And, and you had Robert Cray, you had Eric Clapton, you had, you had double trouble, his band. So everybody's like, you know, and then just the stories of Clapton. I, th I think Stevie needed one was, was in a hurry to get out of there. You would know this better than me, but yeah. he needed, he wanted to catch a flight or he was going to see his girlfriend. His or girlfriend something. was in Chicago and they were going to go back. And, and, and Clapton you know, said, go ahead, take this my, was a gift. And take in my fact, seat. Uh, I ran into Connie Vaughn not too long ago and uh, somehow it came up and, and she just started breaking down thinking, hmm. you know, we, we were supposed to be on that too. And, you know, just, she feels guilty that because they didn't go and they gave up their seats. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was an accident and, and it's, it's something that's supposed to be a great deal. Hey, I'm going to get to fly home. I'm going to go home early. Right. And it's for something like that to happen. It's just, it's all wrong, but, uh, what a great body of work he's left behind. And I'm still going back in different periods of time. I love, I love to listen to the pre double trouble days. My brother-in-law, uh, Johnny Reno played in the triple threat threat review, which had WC Clark and Luann Barton and, when Lou Ann and Stevie were playing, and of course, th talk about bad habits just gone wild, but they were making some great music then, just some mm. incredible music. And of course, uh, also on their, both of them get on their way to getting tore down. The, you know, anybody that lives here in Austin knows that, you know, on Town Lake, just, just on the other side of downtown, there's, we have, a, I mean, the damn statue, the Stevie Ray Vaughan statue seems, I think it's like 20 feet tall. It's ginormous, but so the locals here know it, but it's, Every time I'm down there running, and I mean every time, it's so neat to see just tourists that are that are there getting photos, leaving things. Like it's still, it, it's a huge uh, attraction in this town. That that it's you know. it's the one music touchstone that's easy, mm. and uh, you know for all the talk of oh Austin needs a music museum or or you know a focal point. That statue is pretty much it, and and people do make pilgrimages there. Yeah, I like seeing it just to see you know what people are leaving or what they're saying, or really what people think of them now because that's when I got to write about some pretty cool people while they were alive or 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 freshly passed, and to see how people perceive them now who grew up that really didn't have any direct contact. Yeah, it's all it's weird. Yeah. Uh, cause you know, their perceptions are not always, you know, they're not mine necessarily. Yeah. I was, I was run into Chris, Chris Layton and he's, he's always such a sweet guy. He, he's, he's a, he's a great person. He's a, yeah. he's a, he's an incredible car collector. And, uh, yeah. and he was a wild like man growing up in yeah. Corpus Christi. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's cleaned up. Well, I guess we all have, if we're standing here today, I mean, that's the other thing at, at, at my age, and I'm 66, well, yeah, you're, you're, but, but a lot of people, looking at me? the people with the bad habits have been peeling away. That's all I can say. <laughs> So let's st- let's stop talking about uh, your writing and talk about this this film you made. But I do yeah. want to go back to the writing because I I, I have to ask about Selena because this, yeah. this is fascinating. But but while we're on the 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 topic of Stevie and the scene this scene in Austin, even preceding that with Willie, but I want to talk about this documentary you made as a filmmaker, not yeah. as a writer. Obviously, you wrote it, but then you went out and made it. And I watched the trailer. Um, which is online here, Sir Doug and the Genius Texas Cosmic Groove. I love Sir Doug and the Genuine Texas Genuine Cosmic Groove, which is Genuine. more than a mouthful. Uh, at a time Doug when Doug Som uh, was a mu- was probably my when I got to Austin, I was looking for Doug Som, mm-hmm. and uh, and really there was Chet Flipper had written a couple of articles for both Cream and Rolling Stone while I was at the Electric Fetus in Minneapolis, and they made me homesick. And he described this place, Oak Creek Saloon, and Doug some, you know, holding court. Did you just say the Shoal Creek Saloon? Soap Creek. Oh, Soap Creek. I was like, wait a minute, Shoal and, Creek. And uh, Soap Creek was out on 707 B Caves Road out yep. in Westlake. When Westlake was country, it was still cedar chopper country. And uh, uh, when we went out there the first time, it was like two weeks after we moved, August of 73, went out to Soap Creek down the quarter mile Caliche Road into this roadhouse. And there's Doug holding court. And he was everything that Chet Flippo had said. And Chet and I had talked about this after. He, he was very impressed. He said, that article really inspired you. I said, man, that's what got me to move down. Wow. And, and so Doug was, was this guy that was just like, he was a hippie cowboy. And those two things, no one mixed them up. Willie came out of Nashville and grew his hair long. Doug had already come from San Francisco, and he had pointy-toed boots and, and Western hats. And he knew how to play Western Swing as well as, you know, rhythm and blues and rock and roll. He'd already been a rock and roll star. So, uh, Doug, I'd known all the way through his life. He passed in 1999, um, died of a heart attack in Taos, a motel room in Taos. Yeah. Can I just, let me just stop here. I want to play this because at the start of the, I mean, you, you get, this is an easy way to, I, I credit you for doing this. This gets your attention. So at the start of the trailer for the film yeah. uh, is, is Bob Dylan talking about yeah. Doug Sump. This was a press conference when Bob Dylan is is the the folk hero of America. A press conference at Berkeley or Palo Alto that is is conducted by Ralph J. Gleason, who was the first writer and the inspiration for Rolling Stone magazine. Oh yeah, there's uh, the Sir Douglas Quintet. I think are probably the best. Yeah, I mean, Bob Dylan was running buddies with Doug. Uh, Doug got. Bob to come out of a long period of not recording to record uh, his album, Doug Salmon Band, and sing, Is Anybody Going to San Antonio? And he'd all done, he'd done all this just as he moved to Austin from San Antonio after living in San Francisco. So he was kind of an organizer. Hmm. And uh, he was also a space cadet. I mean, he was, a, he was really a cosmic. He was, a, he, he was into weed and, and smoked exotic weed long before Willie was. Um, Willie had to come to Austin to get into that. Doug was was an old soul as a weed head, had, had pop hits, had been to San Francisco at the ground floor of the Summer of Love. He'd been everywhere. He's kind of a wise man, although he was a mess and, you know, couldn't, couldn't, uh, you wouldn't want to necessarily uh, work for him directly because all the musicians complained about how he paid. 
long story short, he died in 1999. Uh, and he was the story that got away. Yeah. I've gotten to tell a lot of great stories, and he was one that I wanted to tell while he was alive after the Stevie book. I went to my editor, Michael Peach, in New York at Little Brown and said, I want to do Doug Som and, and Huey Moe. He said, that's too obscure. And when Doug died, I, I flew to Nashville to visit Chet Flippo, who was working at cmt.com. And Chet, you're going to write a book about him? Because if you are, I'm not going to. You know you know him as well as I do, and I don't want to step on your toes. And Chet said, hell no. I said, you, you have two years of your life to give up and, and, and return for nothing because your book's going to sell like Doug's record sold, which is not much. Yeah, He's always been a cult figure. Huh. Uh, so this story got away until um, around 2013, and I met uh, through my sister, Christina Petoskey in Fort Worth. She worked on the film True Stories with David Byrne and used to do videos for Joe King Carrasco, who I once managed. <laughs> and she took me to meet Stephen Butt. Of who is the head of HEB Central Markets. Yeah. Stephen Butt was a Doug head. And in fact, at this time I'm meeting him, he has commissioned in the South Austin store this great big South Austin mural above the produce uh, section that's being painted by Carry On, the poster artist here in Austin. So, hey, Stephen Butt's pretty cool. He's doing this. And he, through talking with my sister, proposed doing a, a documentary film. Right. And had the wherewithal. As it turned out, uh, my sister peeled away pretty early. I ended up doing with these folks arts and labor in Austin. And uh, we made the film and uh, came in, got it done in time. Stephen pulled out after a while. I think he had a good time when he was in Austin, the 70s. And that might not have gone down well uh, in the here and now. He's a businessman now. And they're pretty religious. They're, they're they are people of faith, and yeah. I picked up on this. And, and yep. the, the thing is, is, yep. is we did, we anyhow, I, he was great in getting it started and done. It once the film was finished, there was still a lot of back end and licensing for songs is something that only now has been resolved two years later. But you know, and I love documentaries, and I especially love music documentaries. I, I want to see this film, but this film is not. You can't yet. You can't see it yet. So and we you, just finally yeah, yeah. we finally delivered DVDs to all the Kickstarter pledges that we promised two years ago. Yeah. And I think the next step is going to be a streaming deal with I think Sundance Select has been talked about or Netflix or Amazon. One of one of those. There's going to be a deal done so we can stream it. And as you said, no one does DVDs anymore, but people are bugging me for them. I just I don't have them. Well, I, I, uh, Joni, I actually said that when you walked in because you gave me the case for the documentary. So, and I thought and I had there, a DVD. And there were two problems. One is nobody watches DVDs anymore. And number two, this one didn't have a DVD well, in Well, I've been schooled, but uh, I'll see if I can get you a link, Lance. Uh, but it's, it is a guy that, that not only uh, was friends with Bob Dylan and, uh, and Willie Nelson was instrumental. And in, in really, I think Willie and Doug briefly were really feeding off each other. Yeah for about two years in Austin until redheaded stranger when Willie said goodbye to everybody mm. and just like took off in directions. And, and Doug was doing Groover's paradise and producing Rocky Erickson. But here's a guy that is a kid. He's, he's, he's a, a six year old kid and he sits on the knee of Hank Williams. He's learned he's a, he's a pedal steel guitar prodigy mm. it, it, as a child, as a teenager, his family moves and it's across the field 
from a Chitlin circuit club where he, all these black blues guitarists are coming through. He's watching T-Bone Walker, the master of electric blues guitar. Here's how it's done. So he gets direct transmission from these guys, Hank Williams and T-Bone Walker, the same guy. Right. I mean, and plus when you're a prodigy, you're usually turn out to be pretty messed up as an adult. And Doug somehow survived all that and dressing up as uh, uh, trying to pass off as British so they could cash in on the Beatles uh, with She's About a Mover and go on to become this psychedelic cowboy in, in San Francisco and then all these things. So he was a story that got by. And, and the beauty of this was that, to me, I've learned that you want to tell a story, there's nothing like a film. Right. It's, it's a goddamn pain in the ass, and it's so collective and collaborative, and you'll get fucked over sooner or later. But for all that said, it really is a great way to tell a story. I, lo- I love the listeners of the show know i mean i watch every music documentary i can watch love it you seen any lately that you really like what is the last what's the, what's the last thing we saw i mean i've seen you know what i'm tempted to watch is this this clive davis one on uh score yeah where they where they you know they'd go into how they score the movies and, the, and really the importance and the significance of just the way that's all put together right did you like 20 feet from star i loved it and and um the producer of that film was a guy that i'd met many many times gil friesen was a wonderful yeah he's man. an old producer he's an old yeah, record producer old and he ran i think a&m and and gil yeah. friesen had a house in in cabo san lucas so i and i had friends that had houses near him so i really got to know him and his young wife and their baby boy and he, he was a lovely guy and um and then unfortunately you know right when that film took off and then won the academy award he passed away from cancer but uh, and if you were ever around Gil Friesen, like this, on a scale of one to ten, like the way a man could dress, the the best looking man I've ever seen in person was Sidney Poitier. The way he was dressed and put together, and and just nothing was wrong, nothing. <laughs> Gil, Gil Friesen was on par with that. Like wow. he was so elegant. And I caught him one day walking down the street in New York City, and I was just like, Jesus, if I could ever just grow up and look like that, that'd be cool. But yeah, so I saw that. I've seen, you know, you know what's amazing was the Amy Winehouse documentary. Yeah, although sad, you know, it's just you know how it's turning out, and and to me, it's just well, you do the, know. Enab- the enablers. Uh, I just I, I can't be sympathetic. It it just it really was painful to watch yeah. for me. Yeah, uh, but you know, there's 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 all Muscle Shoals. I really liked was watch, kind of inspiring uh, when I saw twenty or, or uh, no, a searching for Sugar Man, and I was amazing. working on the Doug Doc. I said, God, I wish I could. Uh, uh, my guy was 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 like this, and I could make him like a sugar man. Well, I learned a lot more about the film, and verisimilitude was a, a word I started kicking around a lot, which is kind of like truthiness, mm. which is done in film and docs a whole lot. So I learned that Sugar Man never really was obscure. He'd performed all the way through. And, you know, when he plays in South Africa... He it's wasn't the, laying the brick or whatever like that, you know? Yeah, well, the... it's not quite like this. And, and you notice, I mean, the crowd that he played to in South Africa, even though he was a voice of, of racial progressivism, was all white. So it was like the kids of the apartheid rulers or whatever that dug him, but it wasn't a mixed crowd. So I, I begin to learn, you know, there's, there's, there's shortcuts taken in film a lot. And I had... Yeah. Crowd shots were difficult sometimes. Yeah. But we had some great armadillo footage... Uh, Got some good, you know, audio from back in that period, but no one was shooting film. We didn't have a whole lot except for the Hullabaloo TV show and Shindig TV show until Austin City Limits comes along, mm. and then you've got footage. Yeah, I mean, and 
you know, the city limits story is one that uh, I love telling and retelling, but to get yeah. to see it on um, the first two years in particular, but the first season was just magic. Cause again, it was this idea of video, you know, we're going to put music on TV is still kind of a radical concept, no MTV yet. And it was being done from Austin. And, you know, my friend Joe Gracie had booked talent. So it's like, you know, I'm going to get the, the original Texas playboys. No shit. Hey, I'm going to get Clifton Chenier, who was like a big club act here at the time. And no one knew about Clifton Chenier or Flaco Jimenez. Joe was hip to them. So that show started very, very smart. It wasn't a dumb music on TV show right. like Don Kirshner's rock, rock palace or whatever they called it. I was so, I was bummed out when they, when they were going to move from the school of broadcast on, on, on campus and, and build this, you know, this new theater, the Moody theater at the W I thought this is, this is, this just can't happen. But having said that, I love that theater. Like it's, it, it's, it's the most acoustically perfect. There's no bad seat. It no. sounds perfect. It's, and, and Terry Lacona does blame you for that. He said, without you, uh, that wouldn't have happened. Because I've I've gone to the story about what are you talking about uh, without you infusing money into ACL through your investment in ACL Fest, or so, yeah. none of this would have happened. <laughs> and 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 no, and uh, Terry said as much. And I I knew Terry when he came to town, even before he started working at Austin City Limits. And for him to be there and this this personality that's written all the way through, it, to me it's fascinating because it isn't local or regional anymore. This is like this is the best music in the world is what they're showing. Sure. Now I still wanted to get Ray Wiley Hubbard on there though. Yeah, be local every now and then. Let's talk. Let's finish up and talk about Solana. So this and I in, in this to me, I just of all your subjects, this one moved me the most. I think because her, I watched this 2020 with the killer and this Yolanda Saldivar, like it just who was I've never watched. The, I have, but I mean, clearly a crazy person. But I, I wasn't into that music, her music, any of that. But the but the the ripple effects are just the um, just the mass amounts of just heartbreak over her death was was unbelievable. And even still, talking about that Talent Lake Trail, I don't know if you ever go around the very far eastern tip of the Talent Lake Trail over by Pleasant Valley. There's the yeah. huge Selena Memorial painted like you know graffiti. She she is bigger in death than she was in life. Right. And and I I kind of wrote about it when. I interviewed her for Texas Monthly and knew who she was. And it's part of my just, I, I like all kinds of music. I have very eclectic taste. And I've always been to this thing, you know, Texas Mexican music, which started as Londa Chicana in the 70s and kind of matured into Tejano in the 80s. And Selena in the 90s was the big star out of several acts. But it, it She was the Madonna of Mexico. Yeah, and, but it became, it was a national, it became a national sound and traditionally, Tejano doesn't sell to Mexico. They look at Mexicans look at Tejanos as like, you know, Texas Mexicans are, you know, pochos. They're country people. They can't even speak Spanish properly. And Selena had to learn to speak Spanish. Hmm. She grew up speaking English in, in Lake Jackson. She grew up like an American teenager. But her dad had a dream for his band and wasn't able to achieve it and wanted to raise his kids doing the same. And she became she was the biggest act in Tejano. And all of a sudden, people like Coca-Cola were moving in. Hmm. Sponsors. I mean, it was the rest of the... It wasn't just nationally. It was internationally. They were recognizing it. And she was making her crossover album. Mm -hmm. And it had been two years in the making. But when I interviewed her, all she wanted to talk... She talked briefly about her crossover album. 
But all she really wanted to talk about was her boutique and her fashion line. And I finally, I figured out after the fact that she grew up in music living her father's dream, which it was his dream, not hers so much. But drawing and sketching dresses and all that, that was her deal. And she was very proud that this is my business and that I own it. She was not an astute businesswoman in the sense that she let her fan club president, Yolanda Saldivar, run the business and embezzle from it. And that's where she got, when Yolanda got caught by the family, that's when things started going south. So the thing that struck me is, and I watched when they had Yolanda Saldivar on 2020, um, and, and and they were talking about. First of all, she says all kinds of crazy. Oh, it was yeah. an accident. Or oh, I was. I told her if you if you don't if you, you know leave or don't leave, I'm going to kill myself. Like it was so delusional. Yeah, and it was delusional. But she did say that that the father had threatened her repeatedly. Yes. And and obviously, if you're embezzling money or you're about to get caught embezzling money, it's easy to make some threats. But she was saying that she basically kind of blamed the dad for threatening her, and. When the dad finds out you're writing this, your piece, he threatens you. I mean, I, I just, as you said that, because when I watched the interview, I thought everything this lady just said, she's completely full of shit. Yeah. Until you just told me 45 minutes ago that the dad, you know. But, you know, Abraham Quintanilla not only was a great talent with the original Los Dinos, he wanted to see his kids succeed and was, he was a bulldog of a manager hmm. and, and tough. Uh, and, and, when I was threatened the first time with, and I had to have uh, uh, sheriff's deputies at a, a book signing in Conroe, uh, some guy that uh, at the studio in uh, in Houston where he had done some work said, "Oh yeah, that's just Ole blowing blowing smoke. He threatens people. That's how he works." In this case, I really do figure that yes, uh, Selena's sister uh, and Abraham, her dad, had figured out that Yolanda had been embezzling. And had confronted her and told her, we're going to get you. We're going to bring charges up. Well, you don't keep, but Selena wouldn't believe them. Right. This couldn't be, this is my friend. Well, three weeks this happened. So in that three week period, Yolanda buys a gun once out of protection, out of fear that Abraham's going to get her, takes it back, but then goes back and gets it. And it's only at the last meeting at the motel room. I, I believe that, uh, early, an hour earlier, she'd taken her to the hospital because Yolanda claimed she'd been raped. The nurse came back, said she hadn't been raped. Yeah. She hadn't been assaulted. Selena finally believes that we're done. Bang. And that's, that's it. And, and it's, it's the most selfish act. And, and what could be worse than your fan club president, the one person that you trusted most because she didn't have many friends. Right. She was gone on weekends. She was out working. So she didn't get the high school and junior high life that most kids did. So it was a very it was it was a very sheltered existence, and Yolanda became part of that. Yeah. So that's it's the tragedy in the nature because Selena really was that package. I'm convinced had she lived, forget Madonna, she she would have gone or Gloria Stefan. She had All everything. Yeah. She was that package. So it's the sadness and the tragedy that makes this. It resonates in Latin, the Latin world and 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 in Mexican culture. You know this kind of you know, slain when you least deserve it is very much embraced. So I think she's become kind of a sainted figure. People that have no clue who she was. I saw a Selena mural in Oregon. She never got close to playing Oregon. And you know, there's, there's not many Mexicanos in Oregon, but that's what's happening. And, uh, I ran into a photographer who, who shot her a lot 
uh, photographed her, Al Rendon in yeah, that's, San Antonio. That's a better adjustment of the world. Uh, thank you. Uh, but Al was, we were both remarking a couple of weeks ago how big she's gotten. Yeah. And I said, I kind of thought it would happen, but it's to meet uh, uh, Stephanie Bergara, leader of Bitty Bitty uh, Banda, who is a Selena tribute band who travels all around the United States out of Austin. But I was asking her questions because she didn't really know. She didn't grow up on Selena. Selena was already dead when she grew up. Wow. But she's this icon that uh, transcends Texas, the Mexican-American experience, and, and the, whole, the whole Latin culture deal in yeah. my mind. What are you going to do next? Tell us that, and then we'll, we'll let you go. Oh, Other than I don't drive know. home in this Austin traffic. Look I, what you I'm, created. I'm finally finishing Look what you created. the book that I interviewed you for, which is it's a history of alternative Austin. It's going to be out in Texas A&M Press. I, I kind of butted heads with uh, UT Press people and took my business elsewhere. But I'm just into <laughs> the photo selection period. It's going to get out in the next year. So you're in it in, uh, in cool. your story about being the other one-name superstar in Austin besides Willie. Uh, and also your, your influence, the whole ACL story to me is fascinating. And, uh, you know, you were nice to, enough to talk about it For because sure. it's not obvious, but through, uh, your successes, you were able to really jumpstart a pretty cool event, which, which saved an institution in Austin. Yeah. And for the listeners, so I'll, I'll give the 30 second and then you can, then all the listeners. Then you have can, to read the book. You got to read the book, but th- this really started and you know the story, Joe Nick, but. When I won the first tour in 99, uh, the city, as nice as it was, said, Let's, we want to have a parade for you. And, and I was like, okay. I, was, you know, I didn't know what I wanted. So I sat there and we did the parade. It was, Joe Nick, it was, you know, thank you to everybody that came down. But sitting in the back of a car, driving down <laughs> Congress, like waving, it was terrible. <laughs> and so fast forward to year two, when the tour again, the city says, let's have another parade. And I said, you know, let's have a rock show. And so they said, okay, great. They said, we'll give you auditorium shores and we'll get, you know, bands. And so we bring in Charlie Jones, as, you know, as a, as a true producer of events like that. And, and that's sort of, and then that happened again and again and again. And then the next thing you know, in our little office, we went, we had this idea that we would create a festival and that we, what are we going to call it? Well, we can't call it the, you know, Austin. What, well, let's go license the name, Austin City Limits. Right, here's a brand. Let's be honest. Like at the time, that brand, the the shine had come off that brand. It was it was on its way down. And so we went to public radio and licensed the brand, slapped it on the festival, and by golly, I mean the rest is history. We just had two weeks of it here in Austin. I mean, it's just to see what it's gotten to. When's the last time you walked the grounds? Uh three years ago when True Believers, the band that I, I yeah. managed in the eighties, was invited back. And uh, we played it, so it was a great way to see it going backstage. It, it's it, you can't believe it. I mean, well, it's, it's the biggest. It is you know, no offense to Ai Weiwei, but I think there's a bigger conflagration of bicycles yeah, on site. That's true. Uh, outside the festival, and I really got the feeling going backstage, getting picked up at, at Alejandro's house, and then just being taken the back way in. I thought, you know, if ever I was going to prosecute a war, I would want to hire these guys for the, the event because they know how to put Logistics. up and break down so well. And that's what, re- that was the thing that kept blowing my mind. The music I listened to a little bit of it is good. True believers were great, but it was more like just like how they do this. And it was more like, God dang, I kept having those moments because it is pretty remarkable. It's what you said. And it's just, to me, that's the whole Austin thing. The simple thing you said, parade, 
well, let's have a rock show. And that's basically, Austin Scott still has, for whatever you want to bitch about it, or, you know, if you think it's changed and it's not your, your style or whatever, it's still got this rock and roll attitude. And it's still this newness that, you know, let's, let's try something fresh. Yeah. Nothing's, nothing's old, nothing's in the way here. Yeah. If it's in the way, it's going to get pushed aside one way or another. Yeah. But it's just that kind of thinking to me. That's that defines alternative Austin and what became what started the Armadillo. Let's start. Hey, let's start a music hall. Is playing out in high tech today, and and this is it's it really is. It starts with music, and you can add film to that, and then food. But it really builds into high tech, and it's still playing out, and it's because. People chose to think different here. So my daughters are now uh, 15. They were down there every, both weekends because it's now two weekends because one wasn't enough. I mean, if you got all the shit put up, let's convince yeah. the city. Well, let's hit replay and double and everything. Com- and double everything. But this to me just blows me away. And I'm going to let you go after this because I know you, you got a boogie. But one of my daughter's favorite gigs or favorite stages during ACL was the silent disco. Do you know what that is? No exactly are higgs you're aware of this so these kids okay so and she could not stop talking about it so there's somebody performing and with you know it's it's electronic music so the computer that so all the kids have their headphones on you don't hear anything you don't hear them playing the kids think that it's on 11 on a scale of 1 to 10 and they are going fucking nuts <laughs> and and if you walked in all you would hear were their feet hitting the ground Oh, nice! I mean, well, your your daughter thinks uh, outside the box. I like that. I can't. I can't. I said, Grace, you are crazy. That sounds no. She's she's just she's looking for something new and found it. Well, she's got it. And you know, the good news is she's gonna if she wants to stay here, she can. And I I don't think there's many places young people grow up in where they can stay and and it's still cool. Generally, they have to leave. Mm. Unless, you know, L.A., New York, a big city maybe, but Austin is that exception. And, and that's what started around 1970. Pe- people quit leaving because they couldn't express themselves here, and they started coming because this is the one place they could express themselves. Yeah. And still, it's, like I said, driving around here today, uh, I don't know where else I'd rather be today. Right, but it's also, too, is, is you travel enough that you meet somebody on a plane or in a cafe. Where, where, where are you from? You say Austin. I mean, I say it all. A lot of people know I'm from Austin, but if they say, where do you live? I say, Austin. I mean, you've never, ever, ever would somebody go, oh, God, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. It's not like you said Atlanta. Yeah. Or you said, uh, you know, they think it's St. Cool. Louis. I mean, it, the, the, across the board, oh, my God, I've, heard, I've only heard, I've never been. I can't, I've got to go. No, you're 50 years late. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> Pull up the drawbridge. Now, let's just uh, uh, have a good time while we're here and make the best of it. Fucking A. Joe Nick, thank you. Hi, Lance. Thanks. That was fun. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to the Forward Podcast. Like, uh, like I said at the top of the show, if you have anything you want to say, if you have a suggestion, please. God knows I need suggestions. Um, or questions, or concerns, or criticisms, or whatever. Let me know. Send me an email. Send it to theforwardpodcast at wedosport.com. I know it's long. I know it's a little confusing. The Forward Podcast at we do, W E D U, sport, singular, 
thefoodpodcast at wedosport.com. 